0: Free at Barracuda. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
1: My faith is true.
2: Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Walking with Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, my greatest desire is to walk with you day by day, step by step. Lord, to walk with you. I pray now as we open your word, you'll uncover for us how to walk with you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our scripture is found in Mark, the 14th chapter. I'll begin with verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him, And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing But the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. When I was in seminary, I was taught that the study of theology is the study of God. I have since learned that that's a false definition for theology. How do you put God under a microscope? How do you study God? He's not a specimen that we can look at. How do we know anything about God? How do we know who He is? That's why I'd like to give you a working definition of theology before we begin today. If you don't mind, this is going to be a seminary class. First of all, theology is a confession of the truth. A confession of the truth. In other words, the only way I know anything about God is that he reveals it to me. The knowledge of God comes by revelation. It's God stepping from behind the curtain and into our presence and saying, this is who I am. He did that when he came and was born as a baby among us. He was coming to say, this is who God is. Remember, Jesus was God. And so as the disciples walked with him, slept with him outside on the mountainside, saw him in every aspect of his life, they said, that's God. So first of all, you have to have a revelation of God that is truth. And there must be, in that revelation, an agreement on my part that what I'm seeing is true. If I don't agree that it's true, the revelation will be turned aside and it will be of no use to me. I'll give you an example. The story of Luke tells us that as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the And the troops came to arrest him. Peter swung his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. He did some damage. The ear bleeds terribly. Jesus said, put your sword away. He touches the man's ear and his ear is totally restored. He is healed suddenly we have an incredible revelation of God before everyone. But it did not turn aside the Jewish leaders. They rejected the revelation. They wanted no part of this revelation of God. They turned aside from it. They would not receive it. And so it was not truth to them. So, for theology, there must first be a confession of truth. Second, there must be a reflection on that truth. In other words, if if I am given a revelation of God through the Scriptures, through seeing Jesus, if I'm given a revelation of Jesus... The next step I must take is to begin to reflect on what I've seen and what I've read and what I've heard until the Holy Spirit has quickened my heart and I finally grasp the implications of what I've seen. Again, Peter cuts off the ear of this man. Jesus reaches out, rebukes Peter and touches the ear and he is healed. Instead of rejecting that revelation of divine glory, if those men coming as a mob to arrest Jesus had just taken a step back and said, wait a minute, what's going on here? How can this man heal somebody's ear? Suddenly they would have begun to understand what God was doing and they would not have signed their own death warrants. But because they utterly rejected the revelation, and then they rejected the reflection necessary on that revelation, they totally missed out on the third part of theology. For those of you who have just come in, I'm giving a working definition of theology it is not the study of God. Theology is, first of all, a confession of the truth as it's revealed in Jesus. It is secondly, reflection on that revelation. And third, it is obedience to the revelation. It is putting into practice what I've been reflecting on. There is no theology of God without an obedience to God. This understanding came to me when I was in the seminary and we had a guest lecture And his whole presentation in our chapel service, where several hundred theology students were gathered, was extolling the benefits of keeping the Sabbath. He did a historical perspective on what the Sabbath meant, and then spent a great deal of time unfolding the benefits of Sabbath observance. At the end, he allowed questions. Someone stood up and asked a very simple question. He said, Sir, I've enjoyed your presentation on the Sabbath. Do you personally observe the Sabbath? His face went ashen. And he said, No, I'm just doing theology. At that point, I knew that everything I was learning in the seminary was going to be utterly useless to me without some aspect of obedience to the revelation I was receiving. Needless to say, this esteemed PhD sat down amid booze from the congregation And there were no more questions asked. He had said everything necessary. He was saying, I just do theology. As we approach this story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I do not want to do theology. I want to give you a revelation of what was going on in that garden in such a way that you will reflect on it And then you'll begin to take steps of obedience to that revelation. That's doing real theology. Now I'm confronted by two problems as I begin to unfold this story for you. First, the problem is that you have heard this story many times before. And in the hearing of this story, we become desensitized It no longer has the impact that it would have if we heard for the first time the story of Gethsemane. Recognizing that that's a problem, let's press on regardless. There is a second problem. I call it the problem of the gap dragon. The gap dragon problem is that there is a there is a distance between what most of us say we believe and what most of us do the difficulty is that we as americans are so conceptual in our framework of western greek thought that we're able to agree with someone and say that is true and have no arguments against what they're saying, but then have no conviction that we should in any way adhere to what we have just said is true. Because of that gap, it's almost impossible to preach the word of God in modern America and have any behavior change result because of the preaching of that word. Take a few minutes and think about your own life, are there things you know about God and refuse to walk in? I can give you just a very trite example of that. Everyone in this fellowship knows that we begin prayer at 1.30. Were you all here at 1.30? No. Why not? Because there's a gap between what you say you believe... And what you practice. Because the world holds sway over most of our lives. And we see church not as a family, but as a place we go. We don't see church as a place where we're going to meet Jesus... Like the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus told them, go to the Sea of Galilee, or go from the Sea of Galilee, or go from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee, and I will meet you there. They got there and said, let's go fishing. Let's make some money while we're here. Peter's focus was not on Jesus is going to meet us there, because he really didn't believe Jesus was going to meet him there. And I'm sure his wife and his family were pressing him to get back into the family business and move on with his life because this Jesus deal had crashed and burned. So they said, let's go fishing. And they went out and tried to pick up some money to pay some bills. Who do you think was paying Peter's bills while he was trapassing around the country after this preacher? So the things of the world ruled over their hearts so they didn't go quickly to meet Jesus where he told them he would meet them. And then when Jesus was on the bank fixing the morning breakfast as they came in from their fishing, Peter could not believe that Jesus was there preparing fish for them in the morning. He just couldn't believe it. He jumped in the water and swam ashore. He was so eager to get to Jesus. See, that's the gap dragon. That that numbing worldliness. When Jesus said, remember the soil, there are different kinds of soil, but on one good soil, the seed is planted, but thorns grow up and choke out. Why? Because there's a love for money. There's a love for other things. There are the responsibilities of life. And Jesus said all of that would choke out the gospel in our hearts. If any of you actually believed that Jesus was going to be here, you would have been here early. But because we walk in the flesh and not in the spirit... It's hard to apprehend that Jesus, in fact, is here in the Spirit, and He wants to meet with us. But because the flesh is more dominant in our lives, we walk in the flesh. And so it's hard to make the transition to the Spirit. This is the gap dragon that I'm talking about that makes it impossible, almost, for me to unfold this word from God, because we'll have to reflect a great deal on it before we begin to put into practice the steps of obedience that will make it real for our hearts. This is the task I have every time I stand before you to preach. I recognize this. I don't know how to overcome these barriers. They are so entrenched in Western thinking. They're so entrenched in worldliness. In spite of that, let's press on. I would like to define for you the word to know. In Scripture, the word to know in the Greek means to have intercourse with. It means to become one with. Now, we as Americans... Western men want the facts. The problem is, facts don't bring intimacy. The devil knows all of the facts. The devil knows this Bible much better than I know it, he has studied it very carefully. He can quote it at will. Facts don't bring intimacy. Now, there's one other aspect of to know that I need to speak about. Lordship without servanthood breaks intimacy. Lordship without servanthood breaks intimacy. If I take the position that I am the superior person, and you all must listen to me, and you must do what I tell you to do, that positioning would totally break our relationship. Maybe not right away, but over time, it would totally destroy the relationship. Intimacy comes out of servanthood. To know comes out of being a servant to. I said to a couple last night, if you're going to be in a happy marriage, turning to the man, I said, you are going to have to serve this woman. And I turned to the woman and said, you will have to serve this man. Because there is no knowing of one another without servanthood of heart. That's what brings intimacy. That's why Jesus came and said, I came to serve, not to be served. So to know another person is not to have the facts about them. To know another person means that I am willing to sacrifice myself in servanthood to that person. If I come to a point in my life where I say, I am no longer willing to serve you, I am breaking relationship with you. By definition, intimacy, knowing of another, is based on a servant heart. A young man this last week called me, he said, Pastor, I'm so, I'm so tired of not having a girl. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I want a girlfriend. I want to marry someone. And God won't give me this woman. I said, from what I hear you saying to me, you want a girlfriend like you want a lollipop. You want a girlfriend that you can consume. You want another person in your life, not so that you can serve them, but so that they can make you feel more like a man. Is that true? He said, Yes, I think that is true. I said, Then I understand why God is protecting girls and not letting them get close to you. You are a predator. You have a predator's heart. I'm going to pray that God continues to protect women from you. And it's time for you to repent and turn to Jesus and recognize what it means to become a servant and not a master. Does what I'm saying ring true with you? God does not look upon me as something that he can consume. God looks upon me as his child, as someone that he serves. And all he asks in return is that out of his loving kindness and out of his loving mercy, he says, now will you serve me also? Could we serve one another? So God is not my vending machine that I can put my dollar in and get my Coke out. God is someone I serve. I humble my heart before. I'm concerned about. I give to. All that I have, I give to him. See, then I can know God. God can know me. We can have fellowship, one with another. And so we come to the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. First, the garden is on Mount Olives, and it is an olive grove. It's a place where Jesus often went with his disciples while he was in Jerusalem, It was a place where they could sleep all night undisturbed, having simply a cloak to wrap themselves in. It was not a posturepedic mattress. It was the ground. And it was a dry camp. No fire and no water. They only had the skins of water that they would carry with them and the supplies that they could carry with them. Jesus probably knew the owner of this garden grove, and it's their normal place of rest. The entire week before the crucifixion, Jesus and the disciples slept in this olive grove. Now, the olive grove would produce olives when they were ready. Claws would be spread on the ground. The olive trees would be shaken. The olives would drop down onto the claws. They would be collected together into burlap bags. Those burlap bags would then be taken and put in a large stone basin. And then a heavy rock would be lowered upon those burlap bags... To crush the olives so that the oil would flow out of the olive. The word Gethsemane means crushing stone. And so Jesus had come to the olive garden to be crushed. He needs a place of prayer. He is in deep distress. He asks his disciples to stay and wait and watch. I'm sure they don't understand what they're supposed to watch, but Jesus does. He knows he's watching for the mob that he knows will be coming for him. He knows that Judas has betrayed him and that Judas will lead the crowd coming with their swords and their clubs. Then he takes Peter and James and John with him, a little further into the olive grove, and he said, stay here, pray, keep watch. Then he continued further by himself. He fell down on his face He said he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What would cause Jesus to be so filled with sorrow? To be so overwhelmed that he literally felt like he was dying. And as we read the various stories, we quickly learn that he was not just feeling like he was dying... The sorrow of his heart was killing him. He was dying. We're told that an angel was sent from heaven, commissioned to strengthen him. Stumbling, laying on the ground, fingers dug into the soil as though he could not survive. I'm sure making the sounds of a agonized, tortured, groaning man that must have filled his disciples' hearts with terror. Jesus had been saying such strange things to them, saying that he was going to die, that he was going to be crucified. This was not what the disciples were expecting. They were expecting that Jesus would be glorified, and they were hoping that at this Time Jesus would be lifted up as the king of Israel and everyone would recognize him and the armies would be gathered and organized and the government would be established and Rome would be kicked out once and for all. But instead, Jesus said, I'm going to die. What was the source of this deep distress that was in Jesus' heart? I want to suggest to you the reason Jesus was in such distress was that he was being sent on a course that would totally separate him from his father. He was going to bear the sin of the world. It was crushing him. If that was the pain that Jesus was experiencing from being separated from the Father, then I have to step back and begin to reflect on this and say to myself, why don't I feel the same agony when I am separated from the Father? Now, honest confession, I'm able to be separated from God and have no, almost no twinge of conscience because I have learned to live separate from God. Now, that's a revelation that must be reflected on. How is it that we can be so comfortable, so distant from God? Well, immediately I say in my heart, because that's just how I was raised. I wasn't raised to believe or to think that that absolute intimacy with God was necessary. Frankly, I was taught to go fishing. I wasn't taught to wait in prayer and cry out to God. I was taught to go get the job done and make the money and take care of business. And so to come to a group of American people and say, There's something wrong when we're not in agony of soul over our separation from God. Sounds like craziness. Perhaps part of the answer I'm finding in my own life that the more intimacy I desire and the more intimacy I find in the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, the more desperate I become when I begin to sense the distance from God. But it's still not at a level in my own life where I would begin to agonize to the point of death by separation with sin. Paul said, you've not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. This is what he was speaking of. Great drops of blood began to drop from the forehead Of our Lord Jesus. As in agony. The pressure became so great. That the capillaries began to explode in his skin. And the blood began to flow. That's agony. Most men long before that would have just simply resigned themselves and said. Okay this is how it is. I'm going to die. It's all right. But there was so much riding on Jesus. He knew that the future of the entire world rested upon his shoulders. He was responsible for the salvation of all men. It was his task to open the way back to the Father. Could he do it? And would his sacrifice be accepted by God? Everything was on the line. Oh, it's one thing to just casually say, okay, you know, look, I've I've done my best. That's all I can do. No, it is not all you can do. There has to come an understanding in our heart at the glory that is available for us and the joy and the life that is available for us in Jesus Christ. And then there must come to us As we reflect on this, the recognition that men and women by the thousands are going to be swept into hell if something doesn't change in my life because I have a revelation of God. But it's going to require a great deal of reflection on that revelation and then it's going to require a great sacrifice of obedience. And Jesus was on his face in the ground saying... I know the revelation of God. I have reflected on the revelation of God. And now I will obey the revelation of God. Because the salvation of the world hangs in the balance. When we think our actions are of no consequence, then they can be cheaply swept aside. But when you begin to see that your actions hold dramatic power over the lives and the destiny of other men and women. Oh, now it's different. If it's simply my death that I'm concerned about, who am I? Blow it off. Go ahead and die. Give up. But when my heart is broken for the lives of others, when I'm responsible for others, And I know that their life hangs on what I do. Oh, now, now there's some pressure. I can tell you today, I carry in my heart the responsibility for my children and their husbands and my grandchildren. I don't carry that responsibility lightly. I carry in my heart the responsibility for you That's why I pray daily for you by name and I lift you up before the Lord. Now the burden has been expanded far beyond as I go daily to the radio broadcast recognizing that what I say has profound implications for the lives of people who are going to listen. Suddenly like a nail pounded into a wall I have the cloaks of thousands resting on my shoulders, as well as do you, because you are a part of this fellowship. You see why these things require reflection. And the devil says, I'm not going to give them time to reflect. I'm going to cause them to be running from the moment they wake up until the moment they drop in the bed. They will have no time to reflect because if they reflect, they might walk in obedience. And so I'm going to give them the radio and I'm going to give them the television. I'm going to give them their cell phones. I'm going to give them everything they think they want in order to prevent them from having any time to reflect on the eternal destiny, not only of their soul, but of the souls of all of those who hang upon them. I'll be very honest. There have been times when I've not been willing to endure the weight. And so I've just turned to some kind of light foolishness to try to evade the responsibility. It doesn't last long the Holy Spirit comes and says, Ray, pray, pray, pray. Somehow we've been able to leave the presence of the Father with casual indifference, with no pain, living the way the world does, separate from the Father, from Jesus, from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was utterly crushed by this distance. And it makes me ask the question what crushes you? If it's not separation from God that crushes you, then what does crush you? The loss of a job? Not having enough money? Being sick? Having a fight with the family? having friends treat us poorly, not having the lifestyle we desire. What is it that crushes you? It's time for us as Christians to no longer be crushed by any circumstances of this world, but to be crushed only if we're separated or absent from the presence of the Holy Ghost. Separate or absent The presence of Almighty God. The circumstances of this life should absolutely have no power to crush us. There are quick and simple answers to every crushing problem we face in this world. And that simple solution is to lift our hands to Jesus and confess that He is enough and to trust Him to work out the circumstances as however he chooses to work them out, because we said, we will deny ourselves, we will take up our cross, and we will follow you, meaning that we are willing to endure whatever the cost is of taking up the cross. Now the question is, are we willing to endure being separated from God? And I want to say today, loudly and clearly, no, I'm not willing to be separated from God and that all of my energy, all of my strength is directed toward winning the heart of Jesus Christ and then drawing those that can be won to Jesus Christ by the words of a mere man or the actions of a man. I go to the radio station day by day. I leave the house not later than 11.30. I don't get back before 3. So it takes the heart out of the day. From early in the morning hours, I'm on my face before God, praying for Washington, D.C., and preparing for the presentation on the broadcast. It's literally an all-day task. When I go to that radio station, I have utterly given up all expectations of what will happen because I am there. If the phones don't ring, it's all right. Whatever happens, it's all right. Why? Because... I have said, I will do what Jesus asks me to do. And it is only to Jesus that I will look for approval. He is the one who must look upon me with a frown or with a smile. And I am jealous for the smile of Jesus upon my heart. The staff comes in. The station manager comes in and they fawn upon me. What a wonderful broadcast that was, Pastor. Thank you. My heart is not lifted. No one says anything to me. I walk out and not a word from anybody and the telephone doesn't ring and the, and the text messages don't come. I am not cast down because I don't have eyes for those who fawn and I don't have eyes for those who ignore I have eyes for Jesus Christ. He knows what he's doing. So my task is to serve him and to serve him alone. But to know in the serving that I'm also serving my brother and my sister. And to have every consideration for them and to make every sacrifice for them that they could have an opportunity to hear the gospel word and turn toward the light. That raises another question. What is your limit with God? Jesus reached his absolute limit with God. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. This morning I was in the prayer closet preparing and I was there. Suddenly I got a a flashback picture of Jan, my precious wife, seated in her wheelchair. And I remember as, as Jan said to me, Ray, we need to pray today. I'm reaching a tipping point. I knew what she meant. And we in that prayer closet she in the wheelchair and me on my face before God presented Jan's case before him. We took a great deal of time and we laid out each part that had happened, everything that we'd done and everything that he'd done. And then we laid Jan's life before the Lord. And she said, Lord, whether I live or die, I will serve you. She said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She said, I am not asking you, Lord, to heal me against your will. I'm asking that your will would be done. I joined her in praying that. I said, I am standing by faith, Lord, on your word. Mark eleven twenty three 23 and 24. This word brought Jan into my life by your grace. I'm standing now that she will be likewise healed now in the name of Jesus. But your will be done, Jesus. We left that prayer closet, both of us, smiles on our faces, saying we have laid our case out before the Lord and we have been heard by him. And now we are going to trust him to do his will. I had reached my limit with God. And my limit was, your will be done. And as Jan finally began to take her last last breaths, as I held her on that morning, I began to pray, Lord, I commend her spirit. Into your hands. We had reached our limit. And our limit was. Thy will be done. What is your limit with God? Some in this fellowship have reached their limit with God. And finally said I can't wait on God any longer. And so I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my own thing. Several have left this church to go start their own ministries because they had waited on God and God had not acted in the way they thought God would act. And they said, if God's not going to move here, I'm going to go where I can make God move. I want to give you a very clear breakdown of the difference between the flesh's response... And Jesus' response. Jesus' first response was tears. He was taken to his limit and he wept. I also wept. Secondly, Jesus responded by praying. Third, by submitting. Fourth, by trusting. And fifth, by obedience, I will do what you've said to do. I will go where you've said to go. I will die. The flesh response is number one, escape to sleep or to food or to entertainment, to go to sleep. Second, exhaustion. Third, running. Fourth, depression. And the final stage of flesh is usually anger. And the anger usually moves the person into some kind of action where they say, I'll go do it myself. Bitterness of heart results. So let's do some theology. What crushes you? Reflect. And what's your limit with God? Our neighbor, a pastor, some years ago was about to be foreclosed on in his house. He had taken my admonition to pray, and he said to me, Ray, if God does not answer me by four o'clock tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to take charge. God did not answer by four o'clock the next day. I told him that God would not respond to his deadline. That by setting a deadline, that assured God's total refusal to respond. You don't put God in a box. So he took charge. The house packed, he liquidated everything. Stopped fighting the foreclosure. Closed out his church. Said, I'm moving to Colorado Springs. Off he went to Colorado Springs. Leaving behind a mess for me to clean up. His car to be sold and things to be packed. And, but he was on his way. Then the phone call came. I've run out of money, Pastor. I'm sitting in the parking lot of a fast food. The car's broken down. My wife and two kids are with me. What do I do? God won't answer me. I'll pray. The Lord told me, call focus on the family. I called their pastoral department. They said, we will put them in a motel. And he's welcome to apply for a job. He was given a job. He was put up in the motel until financially they were on their feet and they could get into a house. But he was out of the ministry. And in all of the years since then, has never been willing to wait on God, has always gone his own way, and has been totally barred from the gospel ministry. If he had been willing to sit in that House that was about to be foreclosed on. If he had been willing to sit there and wait on God. God would have used him. In the gospel ministry. But he lost everything. Because he was unwilling to wait on God. He reached his limit and said. I'll go do it myself. Thank you very much. Do you have some things to reflect on? You have been given a revelation of God. Now do honest theology. Reflect on these things. And then walk in obedience to what Jesus says to you by the Spirit. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at NationalPrayerChapel.com or our sister
0: website, RevivalNow.Church. God bless you. We love you. Sent you before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy. This is Tracy.